scripture reading comes from Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 to 33. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. This morning we're continuing what we started a, a couple a couple months ago. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, we're, we're in the middle of a sermon series on this Old Testament book called Nehemiah. Uh, it's been a fun book to walk through, hasn't it? Like we've seen that in this in this book, in the book of Nehemiah, basically God is telling this this story. He's telling this great story about how He's sovereignly working through this ordinary guy named Nehemiah to do an extraordinary work, which is rebuilding the walls that that. Uh, that need to strengthen and, and, and fortify Jerusalem. You see, these walls, uh, about 140 years earlier, were destroyed by the enemy of God's people. They were destroyed by their enemies. And so God calls Nehemiah and this ragtag group of people, this little crew with Nehemiah, to go back to Jerusalem to do the extraordinary work of rebuilding these walls. And you see, what we see is this is a story of how God rebuilds his city. God rebuilds his city so that his people can, on the one hand, worship him faithfully again, but on the other hand, that they can also be a faithful witness. So they want to worship him faithfully, but they also want to be a faithful witness of God's truth, of God's goodness, of his beauty to the watching world, right? To the outside world looking in. And we've been making this really helpful point throughout this series that Nehemiah and and his crew that he was rebuilding with, Nehemiah and his crew, they had this mission that was much like ours in church planting, this mission to to know God and to make him known. And see, when Nehemiah, when he first heard that the walls of Jerusalem uh, were destroyed and laid in ruins, in chapter 1, when he first heard that news, uh, he sat down, he dropped to his knees, he wept, he fasted, he prayed to God, and and he responded this way, and these emotions were sort of welling up inside of him, not simply because of the his burden over the physical condition of the walls, but because of the spiritual condition of God's people. You see, because the walls were destroyed and the people were scattered, they weren't worshiping God the way that God intended anymore. And so their spiritual condition was weak. 
And what we've seen is that Nehemiah's end vision when he's rebuilding the walls. And God's final purpose was to rebuild his people, not just physically, but, but spiritually. You see, it wasn't just a physical construction project. It was a spiritual renewal project. And so, uh, and so as, as we're moving now into chapter 10, I want to I start by telling you guys a, a story, a short story. It's a true story about sort of the spiritual giant in Christianity. His name is Jonathan Edwards. Have you guys heard of him? Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, he was sort of like the, this beast of a philosopher and theologian. He was just like just an outstanding preacher. He's one of the first presidents of Princeton University. Uh, but he's, he's most famous for playing like one of the primary roles in the Great Awakening. You guys heard of the Great Awakening? It's like this movement of God in the mid mid uh, 18th century. Just this massive movement movement in which like thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were getting saved, were meeting Jesus. Their lives were transforming. They started to love the Word. They started to obey the Word. Like thousands upon thousands of of, of people. They called this a revival, a Great Awakening, because like entire cities were getting saved. Like entire cities, like blocks of people were getting saved. This one journalist, in describing this sort of unusual revival, the way that, that this one journalist described it is he said, uh, you know, you could leave like bars of gold on the street and people would just like walk by them unfazed. Like they would just look, look, look at it. I mean, he's obviously like a, a metaphor here, but he's saying like, look, if you left like treasures, bars of gold on the street, like people wouldn't even be phased by it. They'd be like, you know, that's not mine, so I'm not going to take it. Right? It's just unheard of. But see, this revival had swept Europe and the eastern portion of the United States, like the, the, the colonies, and this revival had swept the area, and people's lives were transformed. They were following Jesus. They loved the word, and they obeyed the word. And there's two preachers, two pastors that were central to this great awakening movement, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. You see, but before Edwards became this, this famous preacher and theologian that we read about today, way before he became that famous preacher, when he was just 19 years old, he wrote a list of 70 life resolutions. So these were like, you know, resolutions that we write, that we make for the new year. But except these were resolutions for like his whole life, not just for a single year, but his whole life. And they covered all kinds of areas from like time management to relationships to spiritual growth. And they would guide like where he would go, the things he would do, how he would spend his time, who he would spend that time with. They would guide him for like the rest of his life. And these resolutions that he wrote down as a young Christian at 19 years old were shaped by the scriptures. They were saturated with the glory of God. I want you to, to see a few examples of some of the resolutions that, that he wrote. Resolution number 67 says, Resolved after suffering and afflictions to inquire in what ways I am now the better for having experienced them. What good have I received by them? What benefits and insights do I now have because of them? Imagine if we were resolved to look at suffering in, in that way. 
In the next resolution, resolution 68, he says, Resolve to confess honestly to myself all that I find in myself, whether weakness or sin. And if it is something that concerns my spiritual health, I will also confess the whole case to God and implore him for all needed help. It's kind of like what we did this morning, right, with the prayer of confession and assurance. But Edwards resolved to live his whole life like marked by that. And then resolution 25, he says, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is that causes me to doubt the love of God, even the least little bit, and then to direct all my forces against it. Imagine if we did that. Now again, how old was Jonathan Edwards when he wrote these? He was 19 years old. 19 years old. Like how many of us when we were 19 were writing and praying and, and thinking about things like that, Right? Like some of you aren't 19 yet, so like there's still there's still time for you guys. Uh, but most of us, it's like like we, we, we weren't thinking that way. It was just just crazy, right? Like he was 19 years old when he was thinking that way, when he was writing that way. And when you read his resolutions, when you read all 70 of them, you see that these these resolutions, they're they're so saturated with God's word that they just drip with concern for God's glory. They drip with concern for God's glory and a dependence, as you see, on his power. Now, when you consider who Jonathan Edwards was and all that he would accomplish, like the point that we want to walk away with isn't like, hey, how amazing was Jonathan Edwards? But man, how amazing was the work of God in Jonathan Edwards' life in preparing, in shaping, in orienting and directing Jonathan Edwards for his future effectiveness and service to God, right? Like it's clear to see when you read these resolutions how God used them, used this desire, used this desire for holiness and righteousness in young Jonathan's life to prepare him for future effectiveness in ministry, in service to God, and spreading the fame of God's name. It's easy to see that. You see, in early, already in his early days of life, God is forming Jonathan Edwards' resolve to serve him, to serve the Lord. And what we see in Nehemiah chapter 10, which is where we're at this morning, we see the people of God making a covenant to God. Really, we see the people of God making resolutions, we could say. And in these last chapters of Nehemiah that we've been reading, we see that now the walls are built, right? The walls are built, the people are gathering to worship together, different leaders are being trained up and equipped for ministry, but the work is not done yet, right? The work is not done because there's spiritual work to be done. The physical work is done, but now there's spiritual work to be done by the grace of God. And so in these last few chapters that we're in the middle of right now, we see God doing now his spiritual renewal project in the people of Jerusalem. And so what we see uh, is sort of this blueprint for spiritual renewal, this blueprint for revival. And as we saw a couple weeks ago, that blueprint starts with, first, if you want to see spiritual renewal, a revival breakout in a community, which is what we long for in our community, right? 
Like, we long to have the kind of community where people can walk by bars of gold in the street and say, and just walk by unfazed because they're so transformed by the gospel because they love the things of God, his character, his nature, and his righteousness so much that they just walk by unfazed. And so in this blueprint for spiritual renewal that we've seen in Nehemiah, we saw a couple weeks ago that it starts with a love for the word of God, a love for the word of God. In chapter, nine, or in chapter 8, we saw that all of God's people, once again, they were, we said, people of the book, right? People of the book, that means they're people of the scriptures, the Bible. And we talked about how God's people are always people of the book, people of God's word. And then last week, we saw that uh, the second sort of mark or of the blueprint of spiritual renewal is that uh, there are also people who, because they're people of the book, they now like confess their own sins. They recognize, they remember, they acknowledge their need for grace in light of what they read in God's word. And so they confess their sins. And this morning we're going to see how uh, the third mark uh, for, in the blueprint for renewal is that they have a renewed resolve a renewed resolve to pursue faithfulness. They have a new resolve to pursue faithfulness as a covenant people of God, to pursue faithfulness, which is basically just living for the glory of God. That's what they have a renewed resolve to do, to live for God's glory. You see, in chapter 10, they do it by making a few resolutions as God's people. We're going to see four of them. They make four resolutions as God's people. And so the big idea is that people, the people of God, are always resolved to live for the glory of God. You see, when you read the word, when you confess your sins because of what you read in the word, then now, as a people of God, you resolve to live for God's glory. So let's look at chapter 10, but first I want you to read the last verse of chapter 9 with me. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, it says, Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And so the people are saying, look, because of this, because of everything that we went through last week, because of the ways that them and their fathers have failed time and time again to, to live obediently to God, because of their need for God's grace that we talked about last week, because of all that, because of all this, they make a firm covenant in writing. A firm covenant in writing. So in response to the word, and in response to their confession, they make these resolutions. In other words, it's not enough to just like sort of confess your sins, but you need to like change your life accordingly in response to it. I love this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon. He basically says, you know, here's the way that you can know that someone's repentance, that someone's confession is genuine. It's when that person's repentance becomes just as notorious as his sin. And that's what we're looking at here. They want to be a people who are marked, who, you know, their forefathers were marked, marked by the notoriousness of their sin. And so they're saying, now, God, we're going to make these resolutions to be known, notoriously known for our repentance, for being notoriously known for how much we live, desire to live, resolve to live for your glory. And I want you to notice it says there that they put it in writing. They put this covenant down in writing. Now, they didn't have to put it down in writing. Like, it wasn't, this wasn't a rule 
that they had to do. Like they didn't, they didn't have to write down their covenant, write down their resolutions. Like no one, nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to do what the people of Jerusalem did here and write down our covenants or our promises that we make to God. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that we have to do what Jonathan Edwards did and write down our resolutions for life. So it's not prescribed anywhere. We're not told to do that anywhere. Uh, it's not asked of us. But what I want us to notice is that by making this covenant in writing, what's happening is that it basically displays the seriousness of their own hearts as God's people. It displays the seriousness of their hearts. Like when you make a resolution at the beginning of the year, right? Like it's one thing to say, hey, here's my resolution. But like it's another thing to write down your resolution and put it up on your refrigerator or put it up on your bathroom mirror, right? Like it shows an extra level of seriousness when you write it down and post it up. And that's what they're doing here. They write it down. And so it wasn't enough for the people of Jerusalem to just talk about pursuing faithfulness like they made a covenant. They wrote it down. And notice who signed the list first. Chapter 10, verse 1, it says, On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. And it says the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, and then starts listing all these names for like verse after verse after verse. But I want you to notice that it names Nehemiah first. It names Nehemiah first. Because remember, his mission was always this. His mission wasn't just to build up the walls. His mission was to see God build up his people. Just like in our mission in church planting and starting this church isn't to just create a a meeting place, you know, just to have a, a, a gathering on Sundays, but to build up God's people to faithfully worship God, to be a faithful witness of Him. You see, Nehemiah's mission was always the spiritual renewal of God's people. And then after his name, we see the leaders of the people listed verse after verse. And you see, all their work on rebuilding the city of God was building up to this point right here. It was all building up to this Point. And so the first 27 verses that you see, if you have a Bible in front of you, you'll see the first 27 verses are just a long list of names. A long list of names of all these people that signed this covenant, that made these resolutions to God. And then in verse 28, you see the resolutions begin. And verse 28 begins the obligations of this covenant that they make, their resolutions. And here's the first revolution. Or revolution. Here's the first resolution. The first resolution is that they're resolved to be people of the word. They're resolved to be people of the word. Now, we saw this two, two weeks ago, how they were people of the book, right? But now they put it down in writing. They say they're resolved to be people of the word. Read verse 28 with me. 28 and 29 says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, and all who have knowledge and understanding, they join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. You see, so that's their first resolution. That's their first pledge is to continue being a people of the book. 
To read the Bible, to read the scriptures and delight in it and do what it says. You see, at the end of the day, we can't live as people of God. We can't live as people of God without the word of God. We can't live as people of God without the word of God. The scriptures are God's chosen means of revealing who he is and how he works in the world. It reveals his nature, his character, his being, the way he works in the world. You see, we primarily encounter God on the pages of scripture. And that's why we'll always be a church that opens up the scriptures on Sundays, right? Like, look, you won't get a skit or performance, a film, or an interpretive dance from me. Like, trust me, you do not want to see me do an interpretive dance. Now, I'm not knocking on those things. Like, if interpretive dancing is your thing, like, have at it, right? But there's, there's a time and a place. And for Sunday morning worship... On the Lord's Day, as the New Testament calls it, like we're going to do what Christians have always done, what God says that we need and should do. We're going to open up the scriptures together. We're going to sing songs about Jesus from the scriptures. We're going to read the scripture. We're going to celebrate it. You see, my job as a pastor, my job as a preacher at this church is not to tell you my views or tell you my opinions and to tell you what what I think Like, my job is to tell you what God has spoken, what he said in his word. My job is to get out of the way from the book, to get out of the way and preach God's words and faithfully help all of us, myself included, to encounter Jesus on its pages. That's my job. That's what we're going to do every single Sunday. We will never divert from that. You see, and what I want you to notice in verse 29 is that it says that they resolve to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. All the commandments of the Lord. And so that means that they're going to believe in, they're going to study, they're going to read, they're going to obey the fullness, the totality of God's word. They're saying, look, we're no longer going to choose and cherry pick like our favorite verses here and there. Like we're no longer going to pick and take what we like and what we don't like. We're going to they're saying we're going to look, we're going to refuse to say things like, "Okay, I won't commit adultery, but let me hang on to like my porn stash over here." Right? Or I'll give generously to the mission. I'll give generously to the church, but let me selfishly hold on to to this over here that I have. That's for me. Or I'll serve others in ministry and treat other people honorably, except for this person who I just can't stand. Let me hold on to bitterness over there, right? When you hit a part of the Bible that you don't like, what we're supposed to do is rather than ignoring it or trying to change it, you sit before it humbly. You sit before it humbly and you conform. You allow the word of God to conform you to its truth, to its goodness, to its beauty. Repenting of your own unbelief, your own sin, your own pride. And see, that's what they're saying in chapter 10. They're saying, we're going to trust in the God of the Bible. We're going to trust in who he is and what he says. We'll trust that the one who made us knows what's best for us. We'll repent of sin where scripture convicts us and we'll believe that he's the true, the source, the true source of all truth, of all goodness and all beauty. You see, this is like base level, like class 101 foundational, 
right? Like, you can't really have a legitimate movement of God without the Word of God. You can't. It might look and it might feel fantastic, but if the Word of God's not there, then it's not a legitimate movement of God. All throughout the scriptures, all throughout church history in the Great Awakening, every time there's a legitimate revival where people love Jesus, they love the word, they change their lives because of it. You'll only see legitimate movement of God, a lasting movement of God, when you have a love for the word of God. And that leads us to the second resolution, is that they're also resolved to preserve their spiritual integrity. They're resolved to preserve spiritual integrity. Read verse 30 with me. They say, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. So a big question in your mind is probably, man, is he saying that you're not allowed to marry people of other races? Like, is there something wrong with, with intermarriage? Like, what's so, what's so wrong with, with intermarriage? Like, Does that mean that an Israelite can't marry a non-Israelite? Does that mean that a Filipino shouldn't marry a Caucasian? (laughs) Like, clearly, that's not a bad thing, right? Like, I mean, have you seen my kids? (laughs) It's not a bad thing. You see, if you find yourself all hot and bothered about this command, like, to not intermarry, like, you don't have to worry because it's not about racism. It's not about racism. I mean, we, we know this because we see that Moses married a Midianite, a non-Israelite. Boaz married Ruth, a Moabite. You see, in these cases, Moab, Moses and Boaz, they remained faithful to God and their wives converted to worship Yahweh, to worship the Lord. You see, so the issue here, remember, because their resolutions that they're writing, just like Jonathan Edwards was, like all their resolutions were shaped by the scriptures. Two chapters ago, they were people of the book again. And so every resolution that they're writing is in a response to, is shaped by the scriptures that they read. And so this resolution is coming to us, we know, from Deuteronomy chapter 7. It'll be up on the screen for you. In Deuteronomy 7, uh, It says uh, they're commanded, uh, God's people are commanded, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, verse 3, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. You see, context helps, right? Remember, Moses and Boaz, they remained faithful to God and their wives converted to worship the Lord. And see, the real issue here that we see here in Deuteronomy is not mixing different races, but mixing different worship, mixing different religions. You see, it wasn't about ethnic heritage, preserving their ethnic heritage. It was about preserving their spiritual heritage. You see, because back then, your religion was tied to your race. There's very few exceptions where there was a way around that, right? Like back then, religion was tied to your race, to the people that you were born into. And so that's why they're resolving here in chapter 10 to really just preserve their spiritual integrity. Now, there's a basic principle here. And the basic principle is that people who have the closest proximity to you, like a spouse, right? 
People who have the closest proximity to you will have the most influence in your life. Like, hands down, they'll have the most influence in your life. This principle is true even if you're young and single. Like, with your friends, the, you, like you might not have a spouse, but with your friends, the people that are in closest proximity to you will have the most influence in your life. That's why, like, every career coach will tell you to surround yourself with people who have the job or the role that you want to have. Every career coach will tell you that. Surround yourself with people that you want to be like. Learn from them. Absorb from them. Be influenced by them. Because the basic principle is that those in closest proximity to you, they're going to shape how you think, how you feel. They're going to shape what you say and what you do. You see, now it's something else entirely if you're married to an unbeliever. It's something else entirely if you're already married, if you're already married to an unbeliever. Like the scriptures would say that if a believer is in a non-abusive, adultery-free marriage with an unbeliever, then that believer needs to press in and prayerfully and patiently be a faithful witness to their unbelieving spouse. But if you're like young and single, if you're not married yet, if you're young and you're single, like you need to settle this right now. You need to settle this and resolve to preserve the spiritual integrity of yourself and your future marriage, your future family. Paul in the New Testament talks about how we should not be, uh, that we should be equally yoked with other people, with the people that are closest to us, specifically a spouse, right? We should be equally yoked. You see, the idea of being unequally yoked is this image of like, two animals wearing a yoke around their neck that, that, that like don't fit to work together, right? Like you've ever seen somebody try to watch like this really large dog that has big strides and then this like little small dog that can't keep up, right? Um, my parents have one of those small dogs. They, they say it's a dog, but like it, when, you, when you see somebody walking that, right? Like, like it, it's hard for the little dog to catch up, right? Like you're always dragging the small dog. It's like a large horse and a small pony. They're not meant to plow the field side by side. They're just going to go in circles, right? In the same way, believers and unbelievers, have, they have different operating principles. They have different aims that drive them. And so it gets super confusing, for example, when you're trying to raise a child, Right? Like when you're trying to raise a child, it becomes really difficult if one of you loves Jesus and the other one hates him or doesn't want to have anything to do with him. If one of you prays and the other doesn't. If one of you believes the Bible has authority for what we believe and how we live and the other one doesn't. If one of you worships and serves with a church family and the other doesn't. You see, preserving spiritual integrity for yourself and for your family has huge and lasting implications for your marriage and for for your legacy, for your lineage. And that's why they made this resolution. You see, the implications were not just for this generation of their family, but also the next and the next and the next. Now, it's, it's worth noting here that part of the driving force behind this resolution was that Israel was like, Back then in the Old Testament, they were primarily called to be a faithful people. They were first primarily called to be a faithful people, then they were called to be a witness to the world, right? They were first primarily called to be faithful, and then a witness to the world. See, the new covenant people of God, on the other side of Jesus, 
See, it's different than the old covenant. You see, back then, their primary identity was to be a people that was set apart to be an example. Now, on the other side of Jesus, that's still true, but one of our primary identities is not just to be set apart from the world, but to be sent into the world. Like Jesus, one of his last prayers, he says, God, as you have sent me, I send them. And so we as Christians, we need to be living, we need to be thinking and living and acting as a people who are sent. As a people who are sent. You see, today, it's not to stay in, protect yourselves behind the walls. Today, it's not stay in. Today, it's stay out. It's go out, right? You see, some Christians, we have this like fortress mentality, right? That like it's safe in here. It's safe in our little club. In the Old Testament, though, it was stay in and protect yourselves. But now, because of Jesus and what he's commissioned us to do, it's go out, he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against you. So the first resolution is that they're people of the word. The second is that they preserve their spiritual integrity. The third now is that they're resolved to honor Sabbath rest and worship. They're resolved to honor Sabbath rest and worship. In other words, they're protecting their day of worship. In Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 31, it says, If the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now here's what's going on. You see, they're talking about the Sabbath day, the day of worship, the day of rest. And that comes from God's people in Exodus 20, when God entered a covenant with them, when he said, I will be your God and you will be my people, when he entered that covenant, he gave them 10 commandments. You may have heard of them, right? 10 commandments, they're sort of the 10 big ones, right? This is God's law. And then the fourth commandment, he commands them to take a day for Sabbath rest. And basically, God established as sort of this normative universal pattern that there would be a seven-day week with six days of hard labor and one day of resting to worship God, to gather together in community as God's people, and to just do, do church together. And so also they were to take Sabbath rest to, to enjoy the fruits of their work, the fruits of their hard labor, to rest from their work and enjoy all that God has done in them and through them. And also what he's done for them. And in Exodus chapter 31, this commandment to observe the Sabbath is called a sign. I want you to read uh, verse, Exodus 31 verses 13 and 14 with me. Uh, halfway through that verse it says, Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. This is God speaking. Above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. In verse 14, you shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Now, here's what we can't miss. See, the Sabbath, it says, is supposed to be a sign to the rest of the world that says, look, this people, this Sabbath-observing people, they belong to God. It was supposed to be a sign. Basically, the Sabbath was like their wedding ring, right? These people that observed the Sabbath once a week, that Sabbath was like their wedding ring that kind of kind of told the rest of the world, like, hey, like these people are spoken for, right? Like they belong to the Lord. It distinguished them as God's people. It sort of marked them out. See, in the Old Testament, the sixth day was a day of worship and rest. The sixth day is what? Saturday, right? 
Saturday because uh, it's uh, yeah it was Saturday um, and the New Testament we see or sorry the seventh day was Saturday in the New Testament we see that their worship changed to the first day to Sunday why because Sunday is the day that Jesus was risen. The resurrection. You see, the entire way that people worshipped was changed with the resurrection. They used to worship on Saturdays, but now they worshipped on Sundays. That's why they call it in the New Testament the Lord's Day. They didn't just call it Sunday. They called it the Lord's Day. We should bring that back, right? Like, I like that. The Lord's Day. You see, and we need to, we need to dig into to why this Sabbath rest was so important to God. It was so important to God because on the one hand, we need it. It says in Exodus 31, it says, this day is holy for you. It's set apart for you. It's a gift for you. So on the one hand, it's important to God because we need it. We need to take a day off to join together in worship, to be with God's people, to feast on the word together. Like every Sunday morning, that's what we're doing. We're feasting on the word together. We look at preaching and sitting under preaching and and taking communion together as sort of like a family meal, right? Like we're feasting on the word through the preaching of the word and also through communion. And so on the one hand, we need this Sabbath rest. But on the other hand, this Sabbath was so important because it, it prefigured It pointed forward to the eternal rest that we have in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Son of God. You see, the Sabbath command to rest from work in the Old Testament pointed forward to the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus Christ calls himself Lord of the Sabbath. Right? Like in Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. And then a few verses later, in Matthew 28 or 12, verse 8, uh, he says, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, he's the one that the Sabbath pointed to. He's the one all the Sabbath regulations pointed to. He's the one who can give the deep rest of your soul that you and I need. How many of you guys just feel tired, right? Physically tired, spiritually tired. Jesus says, I am the Lord of rest. So you know what this means? This means like if you want rest, that means you go to him. He's the Lord of rest. And if you think you've already gone to him and you don't feel that rest, you don't sense that rest, then you just don't know what you have. You don't know what you have. You still haven't grasped or taken a hold of what you have in Jesus, the Lord of rest. You see, observing the Sabbath in Nehemiah 10 is what set them apart as God's people. But now under the new covenant, resting in Jesus, knowing him, loving him, enjoying him, trusting him, that is what sets us apart. That is what marks us. That is our our spiritual wedding ring, you know? Do we rest in Jesus? Do we know him, love him, worship him, enjoy him, and trust him? That is what sets us apart. This leads us into our last resolution. Number four, they were resolved to give generously to the mission. 
resolve to give generously to the mission. You see, up until now, a foreign king, King Artaxerxes, had been financing their mission to rebuild and re-strengthen the city. Up until now, a foreign king had been, uh, had been, had been financing this. But now, what we see in, in the rest of the verses, from verse 32 all the way to 39, the whole rest of the chapter, it's, we see that they're going to assume financial responsibility for the mission that call, God has called them to. They're saying, look, like we're thankful for King Artaxerxes and the way that he financed this, but now we're going to take responsibility for it ourselves because we are God's people and this is God's mission. And so they unpack for the rest of chapter 10. We won't go every, every verse, but they unpack for the rest of chapter 10 like all these financial obligations that they're willing to take on so that the mission of the church can be funded, so that families can be served well, and so the scriptures can be taught regularly to them. It talks about this concept of first fruits in those passages. The concept of first fruits. They say, that, you know, God, we're going to give you our first fruits. The concept of first fruits basically means you give to God first and as your highest priority. You give your time, your talents, your treasures. First fruits means that, look, God is not an afterthought. You don't give him leftovers. You give, you think of him first. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't work hard or that you don't create a budget for yourself. Right? It doesn't mean that you don't do those things. It just means that if you're a follower of Jesus, then Jesus and his mission and his people comes first. God is first priority. And so what they're saying here in this resolution, they're saying, look, we're going to fund the mission. We're going to fund the ministry. God has been gracious to us, and so we're going to trust him and do our part in obedience to him. It says in verse 34 and 35 that the reason they're going to give is because it's according to the law according to the word of God. And so they're going to do their part now in obedience to him, to what they read in the scriptures. And so the people here in chapter 10, what they're really demonstrating is sort of this biblical principle that's not just like Old Testament, but it's New Testament too. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says that followers of Jesus, that we should give cheerfully, that we should give sacrificially. See, most of us, like, we don't know what it means to be a cheerful giver. You're like, look, I know what it means to be a cheerful receiver, right? Like, that's, that's a lot easier, right? But see, the key to cheerful giving is having this mindset that you're a steward, not an owner. That you're a steward of the things that you have, not an owner of the things that you have. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus... Um, then you see yourself as a steward, not an owner. Like an owner says, look, I own this stuff, and it's all mine. A steward says, God gave me this stuff, and so it's all his. And so if all of our time, if all of our talent, if all of our treasure is given by God and it rightfully belongs to him, then everything that we have is seen as a gift of his grace. And that's how you can give cheerfully, because they're gifts, What do you do with gifts? You enjoy them. You see, if you delight in saving, then you'll cheerfully give to your savings account. If you delight in vacationing, then you'll cheerfully give to your timeshare. If you delight in clothing, then you'll cheerfully spend at Nordstrom's, right? If you delight in the Lord Jesus and in his mission, then you will cheerfully give to his house and to his mission. The passage closes at the end of verse 39. They, they make this one last resolve. They say, we will not neglect the house of our God. 
You see, the reason that the temple, the city, and the walls have been in ruins for the last 140 years is because they and their ancestors have previously neglected the house of their God. And so they close with this one last shout and declaration of resolve. We will not neglect the house of our God. Do you know what the significance of the house of God is? See, the house of God is not just, just, it's not just this place that they worshipped, but it's this place that they met with God. It's this place, actually, that God met with them. That's what the house of God was. That's what the temple is. It was where God met them. It's where his beauty was on full display. Where the, you know, what's called the Shekinah glory appeared. The house of God was another name for the temple of Jerusalem. And in the middle of the temple of Jerusalem, you might know, is this place called the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies, what would happen is one day, once a year, one man, a priest, could enter as a representative for everybody else in the city and meet with God. That one man could meet with God, but only he could only do so if he had the blood of a sacrificial lamb in his hand. You see, Nehemiah 10 is this beautiful scene in Nehemiah's story. The people are restored. They're united, they're together, they're acknowledging the word of God and and how it has power and how it bears weight on all of life and on all of worship. But there's coming a day when God will deal with his people in unhindered intimacy without any kind of barrier, without any kind of veil, right? Like in Nehemiah 10, what they were pointing forward to was this time of absolute, just unending joy and relationship with God, where they could be united with God for all eternity. Not just, not just a single man that could enter the glory in, in, in the temple, but all of us. And not just for a single day, but for all eternity. And see, that's made possible, possible by the blood, the sacrificial blood of a greater lamb the God-man who resolved to live in full obedience to the law and never failed. The Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus resolved to live a perfect life that we can never live, that we should live but never can or never have. And he did that faithfully. He resolved to do so, and he did so. And then he died in our place, on a cross. He stood on a pla- in our place for our sins. And through his burial and resurrection, those of us who believe in him, who have faith in him, are united with him in that resurrection, in that victory. We share in his victory o- over all sin, over all evil, and over the sting of death. You see, what God intended in the garden, just perfect intimacy with him, that was lost in the fall, is now restored in Jesus for all eternity. So that's what, we, that's what we preach about. That's what we celebrate. That's what we enjoy. That's what we return to. The greater blood of the sacrificial greater lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church, or make a donation, please visit kx.church. 
Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening. 